Well, hey, a number of years ago, um, I, I heard a, a sermon series by a, a well-known pastor that I love, Andy Stanley, and he um, preached an entire like 10-week series um, on the book of Nehemiah, and it really touched me and changed me. And I've always thought to myself, someday I want to do something similar. Someday I'd like to, to preach in a, in a similar vein, and I've wanted to do that here. And as we've been as we're kind of ramping up into the school year and thinking about getting back to normal routines for a lot of us in September, holding on to summer and, and yet still back into routines, I thought, what a great opportunity. And so um, I want to walk for the next two weeks together on a journey. And I'm inviting you into a two-part thing, part one this week, part two next week. And as we step into that, I want to set a sail with a question. This is sort of the driving question that we're going to be asking all of this week and next week, and we're going to give it some thought, and we're going to kind of lean into it together. Here it is. What is the one thing in your life that needs to change right now? What is the one thing in this season of your life that if it could change, it would significantly alter the, the trajectory of your life, not just now, but possibly even for years to come? Maybe this is something that's hanging over you. Maybe it's been hanging over you for a while. Maybe it's something that's nagging at you or holding you back. It's probably something that if you don't take action on it, someday you are going to regret it. What's the thing that if it could could successfully change, you'd have less guilt, less anxiety, less stress, less regret. You'd sleep better at night. What one change would bring peace and hope and joy and fulfillment and satisfaction? What one thing would help you lean into and experience more of the life that God longs for you to live? You see, we're talking about one thing, one change, one area this morning. And maybe your area has to do with your marriage. Or maybe it's your finances or a family relationship, or maybe it has to do with your schedule. Maybe you're just living at a pace that's unsustainable for healthy spiritual life. Maybe it has something to do with work, or your health, or a pattern of thinking. You know, a few weeks ago we talked about sort of the stories we play in our minds, the narratives that we allow um, to sort of run through our brains, and maybe God has some work to do there. Maybe He wants to change one of those narratives. He wants to rewrite one of those inside your head. Maybe it's a habit you need to break. Maybe it's a habit you need to establish. Perhaps it has something to do with your personal spiritual practices or a relationship with someone. Maybe God is calling you to step in finally into a relationship where you can be real and you can be honest and you can be vulnerable and you can put all your cards on the table and you've thought about this before and you've heard sermons, but maybe this is the time. Or or maybe your thing is is a lot bigger than you. Maybe your thing involves something in this world that God wants to do through you. Maybe your thing is going to ripple out from your life onto the lives of others around you, maybe even across our state or nation or perhaps even around the globe. What is the one habit you need to break, discipline you need to start, goal you need to accomplish, project you need to complete, relationship you need to restore, debt you need to retire, direction you need to move, risk you need to take? What is the one thing in your life that needs attention from God? 
that needs to change or shift or be reworked. Now, that thing is actually different for everyone in this room. There's a different sermon ahead for you than anybody else in this place. My thing is not the same as your thing, and your thing is not the same as the thing of the person in front of you or behind you. But we've all got something. Something that if it, if it could change, it would be a game changer, friends. A game changer for your life. A game changer in the lives of those around you. And I do want to say this. The title of this series is appropriately and intentionally named one thing, not ten things. Because sometimes the biggest enemy of one thing is ten things or five things or even three things. And a lot of us are sitting here this morning and you're thinking, one thing, Pastor Dave, one thing, I don't have one thing, I got seven things, I'm a mom, I got 15 things, don't you know school starts next week? But here's what I want to say to you, amidst all those things, I believe God has for you right now one thing, one primary thing, one main thing that rises above all others, that he would say to you, this is the most important thing for you to focus on. So as we look at the story of Nehemiah over the next two weeks, who, by the way, is one of the most successful change agents in the entire Old Testament, my prayer is this, that God would use this story to raise up that one thing that he wants to raise up in you. Nehemiah chapter 1. Our story begins today in the heart of the Persian Empire. Quick timeline for you here. Moses, as most of you know, uh, led Israel out of Egypt, out of the empire of Egypt. And he led them from slavery there into the promised land. And that whole event took place sometime right around 1500 BC, 1500 years before Jesus. There was Moses and the Exodus. And then after leaving Egypt and wandering around in the desert for a bit, Israel moves into the promised land. And for several hundred years, they have no king. No designated leader, and they're led by uh, a various number of sort of tribal leaders that emerge, and it's kind of a chaotic, tumultuous kind of period there. But finally, in about 1000 BC, 500 years after Moses, the people asked for the king, and God gives them one. The very first king, and his name was... Saul, very good, Saul. Saul's king number one. And then Saul does okay, but he's followed up by... A man with the greatest name ever given in the history of the world. And David and his rule mark the high point for the nation of Israel. This is the part, the point in the history of the nation of Israel where things are at their best under David's rule. But then after David starts the long, slow decline and things get worse and worse from him. And around 700 B.C., 300 years after David, the Assyrian Empire emerges and the Assyrians come and they defeat the northern ten tribes of Israel and send the people off into exile, disperse the ten ten northern tribes. Then the Assyrian Empire, which seemed to be 
massive and undefeatable is actually um, conquered by the Babylonians and the Babylonian Empire emerges. And then in 587 BC, the Babylonians finish what the Assyrians started. And now the southern two tribes of Israel are also defeated. And Jerusalem is, is uh, destroyed and the Israelites are exiled once again into slavery. This is like you're going to get college credit today for world history. One credit, I will sign your sheets after. Um, and then, just when you think sort of the most powerful empire in the history of the world has emerged. Uh, a short time after the Babylonians take over, another empire comes along. The Persian Empire. And the, Persian, the Persians were bad dudes. The Persians were really tough people. And the Persians um, bring in the most powerful empire the world had ever seen at this point in history. Massive empire huge amounts of power and this was a sinister evil empire people who were not good to those they conquered but in a weird way even though the persians are now in control god uses it to become good news for israel because under the persians a significant number of Israelites are actually allowed to go home, to return from exile, to go back to Jerusalem. And that's actually the setting for our story today. That's where we pick up in the life of Nehemiah. Nehemiah lives in Persia in about 450 BC, 450 years before Jesus, right in the midst of the Persian Empire. And now what God is going to do is he's going to reach down in the midst of this evil empire and he's going to call this man, Nehemiah, to do one thing, one thing that will forever change his life and the life of so many people around him. Nehemiah chapter 1, here we go. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, he writes, and that's just a fancy way of saying the capital city. Susa was the capital city of the Persian Empire, and that's where Nehemiah is. He's in the very heart of it all. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. So there's some folks who have remained back in Jerusalem, who have returned from exile, have gone back to Jerusalem, and, and Nehemiah is curious about them. He wants to know what's happening back at home. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And right away, as this story begins, we get a very clear picture of Nehemiah's one thing. We get a, a picture of what God is going to call Nehemiah to tackle and to address and to change. You see, the wall of an ancient city was essential for defense and security when the city wall was strong, the confidence of the people was strong. When the city wall was strong, there was security and there was peace and there was comfort. And the name Nehemiah actually means God comforts. And, and God is going to use this man to bring comfort and confidence and peace to his people back in Jerusalem once again. So Nehemiah gets this news. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now listen to this in verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. When something needs to change, 
it often starts with a burden. When something in this world or in your life needs to change, it often starts with a deep sense that something is not right, that things are not the way God intends them to be. Friends, where in your life is something not the way God wants it to be? Maybe it's something in you. Maybe there's something lodged in your mind or in your heart or in your soul that is just out of whack, that is just not the way God wants it. Or maybe it's a pattern or a practice in your life. Maybe it has to do with some sort of action or behavior. Or maybe it's something you see in this world that as you look out into this world and observe people in society, you say, that can't be what God wants. Some of you might remember several years ago, there was a story about an 8th grade girl from Waterville, Maine. And this young girl, she launched an online campaign aimed at Seventeen Magazine. And her beef was with the airbrushing of photographs and how these photographs impacted the self-image of young girls. And this one young lady, this one young girl got over 25,000 signatures that translated into a major change in policy for one of the most popular magazines amongst teenage girls in the world. Julia Bloom got tired of hearing her friends in ballet class compare themselves to the women in these magazines who had been airbrushed, and she decided, something's not right, this has got to end. And she found her one thing. Friends, there is a tendency in our world, and I believe in you and me, to respond to trouble and difficulty and anything that makes us feel unpleasant by trying not to think about it by doing something to escape from it, by avoiding it at all costs, by distracting or medicating ourselves so we don't feel it. There is a tendency in this world and perhaps in us to justify injustice, to just live with sin and pretend it's normal, to tolerate less than God's best. But that's not what Julia did. And that's not what Nehemiah does. He embraces this burden and he takes it to the Lord. And that's the second lesson we learn from Nehemiah today. It's a real simple lesson, but it's often one of the most overlooked parts of the change process. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept and then listened. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. When something needs to change... It requires constant, consistent, and colossal amounts of prayer. Not one prayer, not a little prayer, not a few moments here and there, but colossal, consistent, and constant amounts of prayer. A number of years ago, Amy and I had one of the biggest decisions of our married life in front of us. Um, It was a a life-changing decision. It was a... a, uh, family-altering decision, and I remember feeling completely overwhelmed by it. But in this time, God, by His Spirit, just pulled me in and asked me, Dave, would you just bring this before me? Would you just seek me on this? Would you just get on your face before me? And friends, I don't know if there's a time in my entire life, probably just maybe a few others that would compete, that I prayed more fervently and consistently. I went into a fast. I'm not a big faster, as you can see. I, I, I don't fast all that much, but I went into a nine-day fast. Just like the Lord said, 
just fast. And I didn't just fast from food, I fasted from a bunch of stuff. And during that time, if I can be really honest, I felt like this is worthless. The only thing I'm hearing, the only thing I'm feeling is hungry. All I really want God is a cheeseburger. And I'm wanting to know if you want me to have one. But then here's the thing that was interesting. Here's what I found about fasting. And this has been true in my life every time I've done it. Every time I've sought the Lord with real intentionality. It's not during the time that God always speaks. Sometimes he speaks when you look back at the time. And when I came out of that period after seeking God fervently, I felt that he had spoken so clearly that I moved ahead into my one thing at that time with more confidence than I could have ever mustered on my own. Friends, some of you, you're going to dive into your one thing and you're going to dive into it by your own strength and with your own convictions. And I'm telling you right now, it won't be enough. And I like to be a preacher that pounds because it feels good. But I'm telling you, that's how serious I am about this. There's something about going before God and giving it to Him and seeking Him and and allowing others to seek Him with us and on our behalf that will give you the confidence and perseverance you need to see this thing all the way through. When was the last time you took something before God and said, Lord, I feel like this is the thing that needs to change and I need to hear from you and I need to be empowered by you. So if you call the shots and you lead the way, I am handing it to you. We are in this season right now where we've been talking for a while about prayer here at Cedar Mill, and I've indicated this a few times, but we are launching in this fall. You've noticed already that at the end of this summer in August, we've had people down front after the services to pray. And and let me just say this. Uh, That's not just to look spiritual or to be cute. These people down here to pray with you. That's a statement. That's us as a church saying, the front lines of kingdom advancement of gospel advancement happen through prayer. We need prayer. You need prayer. Your one thing needs prayer. So come down and take advantage of these folks who are dying and longing to pray with you and help you enter into God. Some of you are in a place where your one thing is overwhelming and you can't, you don't even know what to pray. Maybe you're in a place where you can't even pray. There's people to pray for you and with you. That's what the family of God does. In these next days and weeks and months, we're looking to establish a a committed prayer space, probably the space in the back where you can go in and pray throughout the week, certainly on Sundays. We're looking for people to be praying throughout our Sunday morning services. We're looking people to be praying for people's prayer needs throughout the week. We already have some of that going. I would like to see uh, more of you involved in that. But we have we are stepping into prayer. Why? Because it's cute, we need something for, you know, the old ladies of the church to do? No. No. The old ladies of the church can do a lot more than just pray. And by the way, when old ladies in the church pray, things start to happen. So thank you, old ladies in the church. And by the way, prayer isn't just for the old ladies in the church, it's for all of us. Right? Love you old ladies, by the way, no offense there. I feel like I'm going to get some emails on that, it was not in my notes. Um, Edit, edit, Dave, edit, when you talk about this stuff. If God is going to make a lasting change in your life, you need to enter into fellowship with Him. And then at the end of this long prayer that Nehemiah offers in this story, awesome, uh, we get this sentence, just this statement at the end of the prayer. He says this, he says, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, it was the job of the cupbearer to taste the wine of the king before it was presented to the king. Why do you think that was? 
Because the king really valued full-bodied Merlots and he didn't want any chintzy wine. No, that was not the reason. You know the reason. Why? The king's paranoid. The king wants to make sure that there's not poison in the wine. Here's the thing about being the cupbearer to the king. You never have to wonder if you had a good day. You know, some of us come home from work and we see our spouse and you say, how was your day? And how was your day? The wife of Nehemiah, she never had to ask. If Nehemiah came home, she knew. It was a good day. If he didn't show, she was wondering about it, right? He's the cupbearer to the king. But more than just tasting the wine, more than just protecting the king, the cupbearer was a, was a very prominent position because the cupbearer was always someone that the king implicitly trusted. The cupbearer was always someone who had a lot of access to the king. In some cases, the cupbearer was actually considered to be the number two most influential person in the entire empire. So in other words, Nehemiah is doing pretty good for himself. He's on a very successful career path here. He's got nice clothes and a nice horse and a real nice house out in the suburbs. And he's one of the most influential people in the entire Persian empire. But here's what he knows and here's what's true. When something needs to change, it always requires risk. When something needs to change, it always requires risk. And when Nehemiah says, I was the cupbearer to the king, he's saying, I'm willing to risk. I'm willing to risk even this position of status and privilege to accomplish this thing I believe God has called me to do. You see, Persian kings, they were very sensitive about conquered cities rebuilding their walls. This was not something that they took lightly. Generally, a city rebuilding its walls was a sign of resistance and rebellion. And so... Jerusalem was a city way out on the outskirts of the Persian Empire, way out on the places that kings worry about the most, way out where resistance builds and grows and festers. But now Nehemiah is going to stand in front of this king and ask if he can leave his post and go back to his homeland and rebuild the walls of their capital city. This is a big ask. And at this point, Nehemiah doesn't know if the king is going to laugh or say yes or have him killed. But he knows what God has called him to do. And so he steps out in faith and he takes a risk. Friends, here's what I know about your change. Your thing. Whatever it is. It will require risk. It will not be safe. There'll be risk of failure. There'll be risk of fear. There'll be risk of exposure or pain or discomfort. You may have to risk your pride. You may have to take the the step of the risk of humility. The question is, will you take the chance? Will you take the risk your change requires? Will you trust God enough to venture into the unknown? Or will you let uncertainty or potential failure or potential rejection or struggle keep you from trusting God, keep you in the status quo, hold you back from the life that God longs for you to live? Nehemiah won't. He takes the risk. And we're in chapter 2 now. Listen, he says, The king said to me, What is it you want? This is the moment of truth right here. Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. He takes a deep breath, prays one last prayer, and asks the king if he can go. And get this. 
the king says, yes. The king says, go, and I'll even support you. I'll even fund the project. And then in verse 11, we read this. I went to Jerusalem. Nehemiah says, I went to Jerusalem. Small verse, easy to read over. But think about this for a minute. Susa is roughly 800 miles from Jerusalem. There are no freeways. There's no max transportation, no high-speed trains. This is an arduous journey through conquered rebel territory. And here is what Nehemiah knows, and here's, here's what he lives. When something needs to change, sacrifice is always part of the equation. Every change worthy of putting before the Lord, worthy of asking God to lean into with you, will require a sacrifice from you. There are no free passes on this one, friends. God loves it when we sacrifice because he uses sacrifice to shape our hearts into his heart. When something needs to change, sacrifice is always part of the equation. Maybe your sacrifice will be with your spouse. Maybe you'll have to sacrifice some things that you've been holding on to. Maybe your sacrifice will be with your kids. Maybe you'll have to sacrifice some dreams you have for them. Maybe you'll have to sacrifice some pride and some things that you've been holding on to for a while. Maybe your sacrifice will be with your money or your time or your job or your plans. Maybe some of your dreams are going to have to change. Maybe you have to sacrifice some of your dreams that God's been trying to pry out of your hands for years. Maybe there are some sacrifices in your family or with your friends. But here's the point. Count the cost. Count the cost. Think about what the sacrifices are and determine in your mind and heart ahead of time with the Lord. Are you willing to sacrifice for this thing or not? Because if you aren't, then don't even waste your time. And that's what Nehemiah does. He sacrifices. He goes. He puts it all on the line. And then when he gets there, we're told this, that he in secret at night jumps on a horse and rides around the city and surveys the walls. He wants to see what he's working with here. He wants to see the status of the city for himself. He dives fully into this problem. And then, and then after kind of seeing what the problem is and, and kind of getting a grasp of it uh, on his own, he says these words. He addresses the people and he says this to them. And listen to the pronouns specifically of this message. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. We will no longer be in disgrace. When something needs to change, friends, you must own the problem and fully commit to its resolution. You must resist the temptation to keep the problem at arm's length. You must embrace the problem fully as your own. There is such a tendency in these kind of moments when you get into one thing to say, it's mostly me, it's mostly my thing, but it's also this person's thing or that person's thing and to blame shift and to push it out and to not let it get personal. And yet, friends, I think God wants it to get personal. God needs it to get personal. God longs for us to fully commit. How easy would it have been for Nehemiah to take this challenge on at a distance? To, to hear these words, the city gates are torn down and the gates have been burned with fire, and to respond by saying, you know, king, I really think we should send some supplies. 
You know, king, I really think some soldiers are needed back in Jerusalem. You know, king, I, I think so-and-so would be a really good leader to send on this journey and, and, uh, and allow to lead this effort to rebuild this thing. Does he do that? No. This is my city. This is my problem. These are my walls. And part of the reason why they've been torn down and the gates have been burned, some of that, it's on me. I own it. So he takes the call and he leaves his high position and he makes the journey. You know, there's this, there's a guy in our church, um, someone I've gotten to know over the last few years, who comes here, uh, worships with us. He's a former addict. Uh, his life at one point stood on the brink of destruction. And when I've talked to him about his recovery and how fully committed to that he is, how fully committed he is to live in restoration and recovery, a phrase he has often spoken to me, several times I've heard it from him, is this. Half measures avail us nothing. Man, how are you so committed? How you stand so strong? Half measures, he says, avail us nothing. And I've discovered that it's a popular phrase in the recovery community. Half, avail, half measures avail us nothing. Because I guess there's a temptation for addicts to believe that they don't have to go all the way. That they don't have to fully commit. That they can get there, that they can find healing and hope by just making a few small, minor, less extreme changes to their life. But friends, it's a lie. That's a lie. And you and I, we face the same temptation in our lives as well. There's this temptation to go part of the way or most of the way. But when something big in your life or in this world needs to change, it requires full commitment. Nothing short will do. Full ownership. And that's why I I think so many people live with so many things. They know God wants them to change. They feel they should change. They know that life on the other side of that change would just be so much richer and fuller and blessed, and yet they never fully commit. They can't quite fully commit. They've tried before at 50% or 80% or even 90%, but they've never gone all the way because full commitment is a tough commitment. But let me remind you of something this morning. You don't have to make that full commitment alone. The gospel... The good news of Jesus Christ tells us that God has made a full commitment to us. And while we may not feel we have the commitment or power or endurance or strength to take on our one thing, the psalmist reminds us of this. The Lord is our light and our salvation. Whom shall we fear? The Lord is the strength of our lives. Of whom shall we be afraid? You see, friends, here's the truth. Even with your full commitment... You can't get there. Even with your full commitment, you can't get there. But you know whose full commitment can? The Lord's. You see, even when your full commitment rings true at about 10% or 0.3% maybe, theologically, that would probably be more accurate, God comes through and he fills the gap. Isaiah tells us this. He gives, us, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. That one thing seems too big for you. It seems insurmountable. Maybe you've tried before. Maybe you've failed before. Maybe you've tried multiple times and you're saying, Pastor Dave, I've tried this before. I've gone after this. I can't get over the hump. Maybe friends, it's time to invite God in and let his strength drive this thing forward because he is fully committed to you. Paul says this in Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Or or maybe in the face of your one thing, and again, I don't know what your thing is, 
my guess is that if the Spirit's put it on your mind and heart, it's not small. It's not insignificant. Maybe in the face of your one thing, you need to hear the words of Jesus today, right out of his mouth, right off his lips. Hear these. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Friends, this morning, we're going to come to the table as a way of reminding our hearts and souls of the one who was fully committed to us. You see, when God looked down at your life and saw you lost in sin and brokenness and hurt and pain and destruction, he didn't go halfway, he didn't go 80% or even 99.5. He went all the way to the grave, all the way to the cross. And he didn't stop there. He said, in my full commitment, there will be full victory. That's the victory I have for you. You see, the power available to you is the same power, this is what the Bible says, is the same power that raised Christ from the grave. So if you'll go all in with God, he's all in with you. And that one thing that's haunted you, plagued you, slowed you down, God has plans for it today. So this morning, let's do this. We're going to come to the table. We're going to take the bread. We're going to take the cup, reminding us of how fully committed our God is and how fully victorious he was over the one thing that is the biggest thing in this whole entire world. That's death. But as you come this morning, I just want to just ask you to pause. Don't just jump up. Take a minute. Think for a second about your one thing, what it is. Maybe you know, maybe you're here this morning and like your one thing has just been ringing through your brain this entire sermon and you're just like, that is it. God, I know exactly what it is. Maybe you're here today and you're going, I don't know. Maybe you're wrestling between a few things. Maybe you have no clue at all. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal God's thing, His thing for you. Maybe, maybe you need to ask Him for a burden in your life. Maybe you need to say, Lord, open my mind and heart so I can see this world the way you see it so that my heart can break for the things that your heart breaks for and that you would raise something up in me that I could grab a hold of, take on with you. There's going to be people down in front to pray with you who would love to pray with you about your thing, would would love to pray with you about finding your thing, would love to pray with you about maybe the risk that you're scared to take or the sacrifices that you're right in the middle of. Friends, this is a chance to again say, God, I'm going to fully commit to the best of my ability. But in the end, my dependence, what I'm ultimately trusting in and leaning on, is the full commitment that you have made to me. And so would you enter into this with me? Would you push me forward? Would you help me accomplish or change or resolve this thing that you put on my heart? So the team's just going to play. Take a minute when you're ready. Come to the table. Take the bread. Take the cup back to your seat. You can receive it on your own when you're ready. Um, And then we'll close our time together by singing some praises to the Lord. But let me pray for us as we get ready to, to receive the Lord's Supper. God, I pray this morning that in this room there are hundreds of things that you are going to accomplish. God, we know your word says that you long to partner with your people to accomplish your purposes in this world, your purposes in us and through us. And so God, today, let your voice be heard. May your spirit speak. And may we hear exactly the thing that you're calling us to, each one. I also pray, God, that today, 
Some things would happen as a result of this morning and possibly next week's message as well that would change us as a people, that would change us as a church, that would change our world and that would advance your kingdom and that would bring glory to you and your son. That's our heart, Lord. We love you. We thank you for first loving us. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.